You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Okay, well, let's do it if you're ready. I've never been on a podcast before. Really? This is your first podcast? Yeah. Welcome, Christina Grosspeach, to The Magnet Theater Podcast, your first podcast ever. Huzzah! Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, thank you for being here. <laughs> is it weird to be on your first podcast? Um, it's, a little, it's a little weird, right? Yeah. Also, because I don't listen to podcasts, so I don't, I don't know what happens. This, <laughs> this yeah. is a new world that I'm just, I just dove head first into. Really? Hmm. Um, embarrassed to admit it, but I don't listen to podcasts either. <laughs> I did for a long time, and then I like, I'm not, I don't stay up to date about anything. Mm. Do you listen to your own your own podcast? <laughs> God no, <laughs> no. Do you watch your own shows on videotape? No. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's horrible. It's yeah. Nightmarish. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to the show. Great. You, I'm going to dive right on in. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to your biography on magnettheater.com, oh. you spent some time living in France teaching children. Mm-hmm. That's super cool. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> I think it's cool. <laughs> yeah. How long were you living in France for? Um, I lived there for, well, I studied abroad there for a little bit while I was in college. And then after I graduated, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life still. And I... Uh, uh, I was like, oh, well, I do. I, everyone says travel, you know, if you don't know what you want to do, now's the time. So I loved being in France when I was studying abroad. So I did this program where you could um, go to France and be in classrooms to teach English. You were technically an assistant, mm-hmm. but you weren't the lead teacher. So in reality was once you got there, the teachers were like, mm, you do it. Uh, so you kind of had to be the lead teacher. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I was in this tiny town in the middle of France um, and it was so isolated and it was awesome because it was, wasn't what you picture when you think of, Oh, I lived in France for a year. You picture like Paris, but it was like my, I lived in a town of 20,000. It was the largest town for four hours in any direction. Wow. Yeah. Was it like, um, like what is it like living in a, in a place? Was it like medieval? Uh, yeah. Like the train ride there, I had to take, Two connecting train rides to get to Lyon and then another train ride to get to Paris to even like leave the country. So uh, on the train ride there, you would just like blow past like abandoned castles um, just in the middle of nowhere. That's pretty cool. It was awesome. Yeah. I This is a really stupid question. I apologize. I mm-hmm. should have asked this question when I was like 17 and can get away with it. Now I'm a grown ass man. And it's embarrassing. Oh. When you're teaching English in a foreign country, do you are you a fluent French speaker? Um, yeah, I, well, I was definitely was while I was there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, then that answers the question. But you're supposed to, I was teaching primary school. Uh-huh. So it was like, I was supposed to speak English to them mm-hmm. and they were kind of like soaking it up in an immersive way. Okay. But it just doesn't, it didn't fully work. Like you have to, if we're going to play a game or something, you kind of, it was just helpful to explain. Yeah. We're going to play a game now, you know, like that kind of thing to be able to explain that to them in French before diving into the English part. That was my question was how do you, like, if you're, if you, if you're limited to only speaking English to people and they're not able to pick up everything you're saying, how do you, how do you teach what you're supposed to teach? Um, yeah. I mean, I know that there are some classrooms that are so like in, in the U S that are really rigid about it. Like, My aunt actually is an English as second language um, teacher. I think they have a different name for it now, but I don't know what it is. And she will, like, she's not allowed to speak anything but English in, like, a kindergarten classroom. And the kids just have to, like, struggle, I think, for a few weeks. And then they, like, really latch on to it. Mm -hmm. 
But I mean, I'm none of us, it's like a program. So there are a lot of, we are called teaching assistants. So there were a lot of teaching assistants like all around the country and people, we weren't like trained as teachers. So we were making it up on the fly. So we were pretty much just like seeing what worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and in pre, it, I taught like preschool through fourth grade. And in preschool, I had to speak a lot of French because they were just like them not peeing their pants was like a huge win for yeah. the day. Yeah. Um, but around fourth grade, that actually was like super stressful because it was just the age of a kid where they can, um, they realize they can like make fun of adults, but mm-hmm. they don't realize that their words can be painful to adults. Mm-hmm. So it was just like, they would like insult my French and like call me stupid and like think that they're free and not affecting me, but I would like leave really sad. Oh God. <laughs> fourth graders are pieces of shit. Yeah. For, and I really think like fourth grade is like the dividing line. You just become a piece of shit in fourth grade mm. and you like remain, it's like a battle of like just what, how much a piece of shit you're going to be for the next like two <laughs> or three years. Yeah. But like fourth grade is like, to, that's the ugly time. That's a really ugly time. Yeah. yeah. Oh God. That's so horrible. <laughs> you would like, you would think that like a little kid whatever they had to say would, you know, you, it might like sting, but then you could have it roll off your back. But like, there's like something about like the unguardedness of a kid, like just insulting you to your face that could really be yeah, crippling. Especially something, something that's kind of like speaking a, a second language is kind of vulnerable. Yeah. So it was just like them just like making fun when I like flubbed a word or something. It was just like, it was, uh, wasn't great. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a great feeling. Yeah. But I only worked 12 hours a week and I had Wednesdays off. And the French school system has a two-week vacation every six weeks. Nice. So um, it was a great year. That's cool. Yeah. When you have 12, so you work 12 hours a week and you're in the middle of like a medieval town in the middle of France. So what mm-hmm. do you do with your free time? Um, so there were probably maybe like five other English assistants. There were two Spanish assistants. The program was putting native speakers in classrooms because French people like have a reputation of not being great foreign language speakers. Uh-huh. Um, so they were trying, the government was trying to combat that with this program. So there were some Spanish assistants and a German assistant. So there were about like seven people that we kind of like hung out with. And this town that I was in, I was lucky that it was the little capital. It was the biggest town. So there was a surprising amount of bars. Oh, cool. Uh, and so we would go on like hikes during the day in these like volcanic mountains. And then at night we would go to um, Buddy Mulligan's. <laughs> Buddy Mulligan's oh, with yeah, a yeah. sweet French accent. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that was like pretty much it. I've been in a New York for New York for a really long time. We went to NYU. But that year that I left and I lived in this tiny town, that was the first time I wondered like, oh, do all I really need is like, you know, like maybe a restaurant, a bar and like some good people around me. Cause yeah. I always thought like, no, I need everything New York has to offer. Yeah. I could never live anywhere but New York. Which is a convenience and in another way, a real hassle, especially if you're at that age where it's like kind of searching for what you want and who you are and, mm. and which is always like kind of a little bit of like an open-ended, yeah, like difficult thing to define anyway. Mm. But when you have like, all access to everything all the time, you kind of like lose yourself in the noise of it all. And you, you can kind of like feel like, um, Oh, just like a bar and some friends and a job to do, like couldn't possibly be satisfying enough mm. for me to, to devote myself to. It's like, it's, I don't know. It's, it's hard to hear your own thoughts sometimes when yeah. you have all the options laid out in front of you constantly. Oh, definitely. So, 
But, you know, a bar and a friend and a job to do and a job to do is like way sexier when you're living in a foreign country. (laughs) So it was a much sexier uh, prospect when it was like I could still call, you know, still on Facebook, say like, oh, I live in uh, Le Puy en Volet. Sure. (laughs) We just like you feel differently about yourself, too. I would imagine that, you know, you're in the middle of an adventure and you're young and and in a wildly different place. Romantic. Mm hmm. Definitely. So what did you, you went kind of like searching out for a little bit of direction or a little bit of sense of what you wanted. What did you find out about yourself in your French sojourn? Oh, I found I did not want to be a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, if you're leaving the room to cry. Yeah. probably. <laughs> I didn't leave. I never cried almost. Okay, that's good. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, the like question of like, what did I want to do with my life is always been I felt like oppressive to me mm-hmm. um and it's like kept me up at night for just forever um I was like a huge theater kid when I was a kid <laughs> I was a theater kid mm-hmm. uh just like constantly in like 20 different productions of Wizard of Oz and various community theaters um and uh you know it was really in the high school theater scene and then when it was time to go to college I like became aware that there's so many talented people around me like not everyone's gonna make it like maybe I should do something else, like see if I can. Mm. So I went to college for something else and I did, still did theater like in an extracurricular way, but I was still like trying to explore if I was interested in something else. And the whole time I was in college, I was like stressed out, like trying to try new things constantly to see if anything was interesting to me other than performing. Um, and then I, when I went to France, it was kind of the same deal. Like, I know I love France. Like, let's see how this is. But then the whole time I was just kind of like itching to like, back and like try some performance stuff. So when I moved back, I like took my first improv class. Mm-hmm. And that's, well, that's how I found the magnet. Was <laughs> it, where was your first improv class? It was here. Really? Yeah. Oh. In November of 2012. Awesome. <laughs> Welcome to the fold five years ago, four and a half years, four years ago. Yeah. Four years, I don't know, four years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so let's back up a little bit. Where were you from originally? Chicago. Okay. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you found improv in New York. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You know, I was like doing musicals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> from from like as far back as you can remember, you were involved in community theater. Yeah, mostly. Yeah. Where did that come from? Do you have a sense of it? Or is it just as far back as you can remember it was the... The earliest kind of memory of it is that I, my best friend's mom was in it. Was in a community theater production of I think Sound of Music, mm-hmm. and I remember being like so young and seeing her in it and thinking it was so cool, and I wanted to do that. And then like I, I you know, there are tons of like children's theater programs, so I was immediately allowed to be in them, and I just kept doing them. Um, oh, sorry, were you? No, no, no. Well, uh, I just remember I remember that a lot of like when I was a kid, a lot of theater games are actually improv. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hated them, like, which is why I never thought about really doing improv. Or like, 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 like what kind of, give me an example. Um, uh, for instance, freeze tag. Oh yeah. I couldn't have hated freeze tag more mm-hmm. my entire life. Um, because especially, especially when I was like, you know, 13 and really just like realizing like, oh wow, we're all awkward and thinking different thoughts than each other. And I don't know what other people are thinking about mm-hmm. me. And you get up there and it's like prime time for people to kind of showboat. Um, and just the pressure to be funny in that two sentence kind of little game mm-hmm. was like awful mm-hmm. to me. I couldn't have 
I just thought it was awful. Like Ella was like, I don't want to do this. Like, let me just go be the Cheshire cat mm-hmm. in our Alice in Wonderland production. Um, so I, I hated improv. So I thought, you know, I was from Chicago, like second city made sense, but it just like, I didn't think that was for me because I didn't like these theater games. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I came back to do improv, well, I didn't come back to do improv. I came back because I love New York. But when I did improv, when I was here, my heart was like pounding out of my chest. Like I felt like I was 13 again. Yeah. Well, it, it like, it's rough enough being 13. Yeah. And, and being in a place where you are like overwhelmingly concerned with what other people think about you and also overwhelmingly concerned with making it look like you're not overwhelmingly concerned. Yes. So you're putting all of your, all of your mental energy into worrying and, and being phony about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's already bad enough, but then to like, free, I have mixed feelings about free stage. It depends. I still hate it. Yeah. If you, if you do it Right. Freestech can be awesome, mm-hmm. but you have to set it up in a really specific way. Like Freestech can be a really awesome exploratory game if you're looking to create material together just as a way to start like the tap flowing. Mm-hmm. Freestech can be a really awesome way to warm up. If you have a good spirit, it can be a really good way to end a show. But like people play it wrong and they play it with that priority on as quick as possible. Yes as wacky as possible, as premacy as possible. And so it's just a series of quick tag out jokes that all kind of suck. Yeah. And that in and of itself, as a, as a confident grown person, that is terrible. It, 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 because it puts so much value on the two seconds you have to make your move that you have no joy in making that move at all. Ugh. The, the little bit of reward that you get for doing it well is far outweighed by the the huge uh, uh, amount of opportunity there is for you to horribly fuck it up. I feel like I'm glowing right now listening to this brutal, this takedown of freeze tech. Yeah. I'm so happy. I just can't stand it. Yeah. Well, if you prioritize it as a showing off of comedy skills, yeah, it's a terrible game. I remember when I was 13 and I would watch this kid. I think his name was Ben. And he would always go up there and no matter what the position people would be in, he he would come up and be like, would you like fries with that? <laughs> and the room would explode. And I would sit in the back like, I'll never think of anything as funny as would you like fries with that? Yeah. Um, but it's just, it's not, it's not funny. <laughs> it's just like a hacky, yes. who can come up with like the hackiest joke. Um, and that's never, you know, I'm kind of right now trying to figure out like what I like in comedy. And that was just never something that came naturally to me any way was like punchlines. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Well, you got to play slow freeze tag. Uh, <laughs> slow freeze Yeah. Rachel Hamilton used to teach a class here where like one of the weeks you would play slow freeze tag for like two hours. Oh my God. It was great. And it wasn't like you weren't doing like crazy long scenes, but you were like, you would freeze when it felt like the scene was done and then step in and you would take your time to kind of actually get into a scene. It wasn't like mm. prioritizing punchline. It's a good way to get out of your head. That was actually the one, the one time where I felt like, oh, maybe free sag isn't awful is when is in like level six, when or level five or level six, Peter makes you do free sag. Yeah. And I would be in the line just like stewing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, one time he, he said like, don't freeze when you think something's funny, freeze when the scene is over and then just like come up with something when you're there. Yeah. And it w- did automatically kind of change the quality of it. Um, most of the time people couldn't stick to that because it's like 
Oh, somebody put a hand in front of their mouth. The next scene's about a blowjob. So dumb. Invariably. Yes, of course. Um, but like when people could stick to that kind of, which I'm sure is maybe what the Rachel Hamilton thing is. It's really just improv mm-hmm. that just happens to have a little bit of movement involved. There's a really great video. I think it's still up for free on YouTube. Uh, it's a documentary called Second to None. Have you ever seen it? Mm-mm. It's about um, the 1996 Second City main stage cast, and it kind of follows them through developing and then like polishing their big show. It's called Paradigm Lost. Um, and McNapier was the director of that show. So that was the like Tina Fey, Rachel Dratch, Kevin Dorff cast, really amazing group of people. Um, it's really great to watch because you see them do stuff like first line, last line, um, where they're just like playing where it's like everyone in a line, two people coming out and do a scene and you and I are playing a scene. And at some point in the scene, you know, you say like, I couldn't be happier. And then Mick as director goes and scene, I couldn't be happier. And then Evan steps out with, I couldn't be happier. And that's the initiation to a brand new scene. And you just do a whole shitload of scenes and take that last line and start the next one. And it is crap. It really, <laughs> it's like it, you're watching the best improvisers in America do kind of crappy scenes. Mm-hmm. But then among those crappy scenes, you see this little tiny nugget of what eventually became the scene called Wicked with Tina Fey and Rachel Drash. That's one of like the classic Second City scenes of all time. Mm-hmm. And is an amazing just piece of theater. It's an amazing like heartfelt, rich, incredible scene about this mother and her daughter in Boston. Hmm. But it came from this little tiny crappy, they produced, I don't know how much crap. And then in that crap was like a little tiny something. Hmm. And then in the next rehearsal, they come back and they explore that tiny something. So like games like that are really awesome. If, if um, they're not precious at all, you know what I mean? Like if you're able to just like vomit up a bunch of material and not care at all, it can be a super, super useful way to create together, mm. but not when you're 13. No, not when you're 13. No. So, so you went off to college, you spent some time abroad mm. and you kind of found that removing yourself from performance only made you realize that you, that's what you wanted to be doing. At least try, like spend a section of my life trying Yeah, like as that, maybe being the main focus. Yeah. Um, Cause I didn't, what I, what I don't want is like a, my, my whole life to be thinking about, you know, a life not lived. It's yeah. like a nightmare to me. Yeah. So um, I might as, so it just kind of felt like if I'm still thinking about it now, after all these years where I told myself I'm going to find something else then I might as well just give it a, just to give it a section of my life to yeah. see what happened. Yeah. Well, I mean, just, just realizing that there are lots of other talented people out there is enough to put you in your head, but that's not a good reason to <laughs> quit something that you really want to be doing. I know, but, um, I am a, I've been an overachiever my whole life. Yeah. So I just like, I always got high off of being the best at things. Yeah. So it's like, as soon as I realized, Oh, I'm, I'm pro- I might not be the best at this. I'd like duck out and then like pursue the next thing that I was going to be the best at, which makes me sound awful. No. Um, but that's what, that's what my, that's why I stayed away from organized sports for, for a long time. Cause I kind of just knew this wasn't my natural cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something I'm trying to be a lot better at. Cause mm-hmm. I, I've never been a perfectionist by any stretch of the imagination. I've never been an overachiever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have had a really bad attitude. If I was really good at something and it came easily to me, I enjoyed the 
the um the like sense of I enjoyed the attention I can get from it. <laughs> and if anybody came along who was better at it than me and I couldn't match them, I would just like give up an assault. Uh, oh no. But I, I totally get that feeling though. Yeah. It, it, there's a thing of like, what's the point of even doing this if I can't be a legend in my own mind about it? Yes. If it's just the practice of this thing that either I enjoy or that I'm skillful at or whatever, if it's just the practice of it on its own terms, what's the point of that? And I think that that's a really like pre-adolescent, adolescent thing that kind of lingers in your mind for a good chunk of the rest of your life is like, it's a fantasy in your head of the crowd that you're playing to. It's a fantasy in your head of like the documentaries that people are going to be making about you in years to come where they're mm-hmm. talking about how amazing you are. Oh yeah. And when you come up against the reality that that may not be true, I might be drawing or playing music, but they may not make documentaries talking about how I changed the game. It's a really easy thing to, to want to give it up and walk away from it. <laughs> yeah. Cause you want to, everyone, everyone wants to be like the legend. Everyone's everyone wants to be what them like moms from their high school town imagine that. They yeah. Are. Yes. Yeah. I, it, 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 which gets me wondering too, sometimes like how much of that is just like, a hormonal shift that happens when you're at that age that you're starting to like explore what you love, but you have these crazy hormones that are making it really important to you that everyone around you love you. How much mm-hmm. of it is just internalizing what you perceived as the expectations of the adults in the room when you were growing up? No, that was a big part of it for me was like, for me, if I was really like, I was really good at drawing certain, certain things. And then my parents saw that and and made a big deal about it very kindly and wonderfully and went out of their way to like supply me with everything I could ever possibly need. Mm-hmm. Beautiful drafting table and, and all the pencil and all the pens and like everything. And the more it seemed like they were really enthused about it, the more I didn't want to do it anymore. Oh, interesting. Because there was this thing of like, it felt like too much pressure. Yeah. And it was never them putting pressure it was me internalizing my perception of what it meant to them and then realizing there's other people better at this than me and I'm never going to be able to live up to it. And now I don't like this thing anymore. It's like a huge, huge idiot <laughs> thing to do, but you don't know any better because you're a dumb kid. No, I've actually been talking about that exact thing with my therapist. Ooh, that was an italicized <laughs> Getting therapist. real on the magnet podcast. Just because I do feel kind of like the, this like a, this kind of oppressive weight of perfectionism. Um, and I'm constantly fighting against it. Mm-hmm. And um, we were like talking, you know, where does that come? You know, this is all she ever asked me is where do you think that comes from? And mm-hmm. it gets old to be honest, <laughs> that question. But um, at some, you know, at some point I was saying like, my parents could not have been more supportive of everything that I was doing. And she said, well, actually, a lot of times when parents are really kind of, if they praise achievement or they really kind of like are supportive of something you're interested in, then it teaches you that achievement and these like very, these kind of like concrete, like you doing art, it teaches you that that's what has value and other things don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I think I personally definitely picked that up just from them being like, great, straight A's, just like, great, you're, you got the lead in the show. Great. Like, just like being very congratulatory, which is of course what parents should do. Sure. I kind of learned that that's what being, I don't know, worthy of love means mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah. Which is, I mean, twisted. How, how, 
if that, if, if, how can you ever be a successful parent? (laughs) Even just being so loving can end up affecting your kids in a negative way. Fucking terrifying, isn't it? (laughs) It's like, no, you you know, no matter what you do, you're going to fuck your kid up in some way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you just got to kind of get on with it. Like, that's why I, like, I sort of admire, like, I see sometimes on the subway very like I considered it to be like down to earth parents um, who are, are like just kind of like leaving their kids alone until their kid like gets a little bit out of line. And then it's just like a little smack and then the kid gets back in line and the parents like minding their own business, <laughs> like letting the kid explore a little bit and then a little smack. On the- I kind of like that. There's <laughs> something about like, well, the kid's going to have to figure some stuff out. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I mean, New York city parents and New York city kids, there is like a level of freedom there, which is a little bit of, I think, terrifying, terrifying to watch yeah. as a, as an outsider and somebody who grew up in just very sheltered suburb, yeah. like seeing kids like on the subway. Part of it is great. Like, you know, I think kids should be raised up in diverse, exciting kind of place. But also it's, I don't know. I think it's, I'm terrified on the subway all the time. And it's like, even now, I mean, it's, it's still a very protected thing. My dad grew up on the Lower East Side in the, in the early fifties and, you know, he was riding the train by himself going into the Bronx when he was like nine or something. Mm. And like tells a lot of stories of like kids would just sort of like roam the streets back then. You know, you'd have a quarter in your pocket and you'd just kind of like roam around the subway. And this was like in the scary times of New York too. Where mm. It was like kind of a violent city. Yeah. So we see kids now with this kind of perceived freedom and you realize like that's not it's even nothing. close. <laughs> you had to like join a gang when you were like nine years old. Oh. You actually kind of did. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah, I it, I don't know. It's not your parents' fault, and it's not your fault either. It's like your brain's just not formed yet, and yeah. so like as a kid, you like draw certain conclusions from those experiences, and then like you create a working philosophy out of it, and it ends up kind of driving your behavior without you realizing it. And it works for a while. Yeah, well, that's it, right? Like that's the that I'm I'm reading an, uh, a a book on neurotic behavior right now. It's a little bit outdated, but you know, still has like its points. Called Neurosis and Human Growth by Karen Horney, uh, <laughs> which is a very funny name. Uh, um, where was I going with this? Oh yeah, it, 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 and the thing is, like tendencies like that about yourself that drive you crazy. The, the the problem with them is that they were effective strategies. Like they work. They lead you to effective behaviors, and so without realizing it, you just unconsciously become reliant on them all the time. And then you build up this whole world of taboos and phobias around them mm. and anxieties around them and all this stuff. Quite fascinating. Mm. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, um, having a bad taste in your mouth from improv exercises, <laughs> when you came back to New York after college and after the, the French trip, uh, uh, what attracted you to an improv theater? Um, I had a job in an office working for Bob Vila, if you know who that is. Sure, this old house. <laughs> yeah. An American icon. I worked at his website. Um, I was working in an office and I was um, dying inside, just yeah. like being in an office. I had all of these um, little controlled rebellions against the man, yeah. like, and the man was routine. Yeah. Like, I, I'm not brushing my teeth tonight. <laughs> like, oh, like, I'm going to. I'm going to take the bus and be late. Like I would just, I couldn't, I couldn't have a routine. I was going crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just like, 
felt like I needed to do something different and improv and I wanted to perform, but like as a person alone in the city, like how do you just decide one day? It just, it seemed like the most accessible way to start or kind of just see what's in this world. And the comedy world is something that I avoided because I was afraid I wouldn't be the best. Mm -hmm. So it was like, now I'm an adult. It was kind of felt like, let's confront this thing that you've been afraid of. And you're still here four years later, so it, it was going well for you. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> what was that experience like? Joining basically a brand new community and a new a new side of of performing. Like, how was it for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think it, it was the perfect thing for me at the time. I mean, I, I left New York, and when I came back, like the city doesn't give a fuck about you. The city in a year it had changed. People had left, people had changed, like friendships had changed, like, um, and the, cause that's how fast the city moves. It was like, I needed a new community, honestly. Um, there are times in your life where you're open to new friendships and closed. And I was like open and ready. So it was, um, in that sense, it was perfect. Um, but it was also, I came back, I was kind of, I think it was like 23. So I was just, um, aching to like try something new and really pursue it. So it was kind of a new journey that I started. And so that's, that's kind of how it was. It just felt like this new thing that I could focus on. So what's, this is a, I'm going to ask this question real broadly, and then we'll try to kind of like winnow it down to something a little bit easier to, to get to, but what's your take on comedy? (laughs) That's the real broad question. But you said before that, like, y- you have an aversion to, like, the joke, as the punchline aspect of it. That's not the kind of performer that you are. And you're into performance was more theater and, and musical than comedy initially. Mm-hmm. So now you're pretty immersed in, in the comedy scene. So, like, how are you finding your place in that? How are you finding your voice in that? What, what how, are, how have you found your style? Um, well, I haven't settled on anything firmly yet as it's all, it's always evolving, but I just from kind of like seeing what I enjoy doing, feeling what I'm enjoying doing or what feeling what I'm, Oh, I'm enjoying watching this thing. And I don't enjoy watching this thing as much. Um, the, I think what it comes down to is like, I am just, I get so like excited. And what is most funny to me is like a, like a real human story. Mm. And in a com in the comedy world, a lot of people when they're doing characters, it's, it can be big. And I know that I can be big because I'm still a seven year old doing Annie mm. in the Vernon Hills community theater stage. Mm. Um, but it was, but when I see people who are like just being humans and reacting as humans, like it's just, it's the funniest thing to me. So something about, and that's something that I, what has kept me at magnet for so long is, is heart. I think mm-hmm. heart and like real stories is where I'm kind of like feeling was what kind of how, what I'm feeling about it right now. I don't know what that means for me and what I want to do with it, but that's kind of what I'm starting to feel very passionately about. Mm-hmm. An, uh, uh, an authenticity. Yes. Were there like specific, like what speaks to you? What's like stuff that you've seen that you found? inspiring or, or just kind of like, Oh, Oh, great. Oh my goodness. You don't have to answer it if you don't want that to. Is, well, it's just, it's one of those questions where someone's like, um, you know, what's a good restaurant. And suddenly you're like, have I ever been to a restaurant before? I, sure, I yeah. can't think of anything. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, just like in terms of kind of like improv performances, I don't, I, 
or not improv performances. I mean, just improv at Magnet versus some other theaters. I think sometimes, sometimes you'll get crazier things here than you will get on other stages, which is fun mm-hmm. in its own right. But I think sometimes you'll get like quieter or people, quieter performances or people who are like, yeah, it's cool with, for me that the audience isn't laughing for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, and like engaging in maybe a sad thing, knowing that there is a lot of comedy in tragedy. There, there's a way where you can idealize kind of uh, authenticity on stage. And as a performer, you can decide like, oh, I like, I like that. I like humanity and I like simplicity and I like good storytelling and I like real rich characters. And then you go up to do your performance and you end up doing your impersonation of what that is. <laughs> and you know instantly that you're doing it because it feels like lifeless and, and not fun and horrible and, and, you usually find yourself going really negative or getting really quiet or, or, or like putting uh, uh, jerry rigging like false emotions into mm-hmm. stuff. I know I've catch myself doing that constantly. Mm-hmm. And I'm like really fascinated by this because I, I, I think you and I are on the same page about it. I think that that feeling of like unguarded authenticity and, and just like getting to watch people develop over the course of a show is probably my favorite thing too. It's mm-hmm. that like little spark that you just kind of notice. Like I I love shows that don't necessarily, they're not driven necessarily to a goal. You're not trying to get the ball to the end zone for the touchdown. I love shows that just kind of like wander around a little bit and are populated with characters that I find compelling and believable and who I care about and where I'm given the space and the time to just kind of watch them be themselves. Like I'm very, I, I like a show that feels a little bit like a walk in the woods with your friend. Yes. It's my favorite. And I think what you just said is characters people care about is the most, just like the most important thing for me, which is, this is a tangent, but why Westworld sucks. Oh, yeah. Hot take, hot take. Uh, Westworld uh, sucks. Who cares about any of those people? Agreed. And there are, or the robots. Yeah. I just, um, you have to care. Uh, just like any form, whatever, I don't know, anyone who's listening who's about to create content, like... <laughs> Um, the people, the characters, you have to care about them. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Matt Shafiq, but <laughs> all of your opinions about Westworld could not be more wrong. I know you're listening. Uh, and you know, we'll talk face to face about it. I couldn't agree more. Here's the big mistake Westworld made. In my opinion, they set that entire season up to have the cool reveal. There's like two reveals so the entire season was about guarding certain information from you so that when they eventually reveal it, you'll be like, whoa. Yeah. But in order to prioritize that, they guarded information that would actually give you insight into like people's motivation and like what they care about. Mm. And so by time the reveal happens, nine episodes in or whatever, it's like, I don't care about these people at all. So this reveal doesn't mean anything to no, me. No, it means nothing. Shit. So had they just told that story in like a simple linear fashion, I think they would have had a lot more success to see like why people think the way they think and why they make the choice, but they blew it. Oh, Ugh. Matt, you know where to find me. Nice. So here, here's the, the, I could not agree more. And it's actually super hard when you're improvising to, to do that because you do feel the pressure. You feel the expectation to be getting a certain amount of laughs per show. And, and sometimes you do feel that sense of like, Oh God, I hope I'm not like letting people down. So I better do something kind of like quirky right now. But when you see people who kind of like have the guts to 
play authentic, to be authentic, it's like what keeps you hungry to keep on going, at Mm -hmm. least for me. And there is like a weird trick to it too, because one person's authenticity is not another person's authenticity. And so if you look at one person who's a performer that you really admire and, and they have an authenticity that you want to have going for yourself as well, you are almost certainly going to make some missteps in trying to do what they do for a while. Yeah. Like for you, being seven years old in Annie uh, would probably be like an authenticity. There would be like that. There was <laughs> there would be like a childlike quality to something that would be a really vivid lifelike moment for you. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting as you're improvising because I think it takes some time to figure out that the best way to be like the people that you most admire is to not act like the people that you most admire. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, yeah, but that's, I mean, the hardest lesson. That's the whole, I mean, that to be yourself yeah. is the hardest thing. Yeah. So now, so you've ended up on a couple of teams that um, have a very like fluid, like a touch of like performance art quality to some of the teams that you've been on. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that like play into the kind of like authenticity that you enjoy in shows? Like how you... To be honest, sometimes it was, uh, when I first started doing some of it, it was like, it was difficult for me mm-hmm. because, um, especially on deep Queens, cause there was a sort of like humans as objects kind of like gimmick there that it felt like w- sacrificing human emotion yeah. for the kind of like playful circusy kind of more style. Yeah. Um, and that that I felt like constantly, like I, my gears were grinding incorrectly inside of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I loved body work though. Uh, I loved deep Queens. So it was really fun, but it was just like, that was something I was always kind of, I couldn't reconcile in my head. However, I think some like uh, with body work, it's more fluid style in that cutting. We're trying kind of doing away with edits a little bit. And in that way, that feels almost more authentic because you don't get this moment where it's like, and I'm the improviser walking across the stage. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it kind of takes away, I don't know, or takes away or puts up the fourth wall even stronger. Like you're, because when a, when a, when you see an edit, when you see the improviser run across the stage, it's like, oh, I know that's Lewis where 10 seconds before you were the mayor of this town and mm-hmm. I was totally buying into it. But if you can kind of like get rid of that for the whole half an hour, and I feel like you can, the audience can kind of buy into the characters just even that more. Yeah. Well, there's another thing too with edits. By giving the audience the opportunity to applaud and put an end on the on the scene that's happening right now, there you have a half second where there's an empty stage and now you have to step out and the applause stops and people are waiting to see what you're going to do. So you have mm-hmm. to kind of start at the beginning again and build another thing up. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you get rid of the edits and you kind of like cross through to initiate the next scene or, or have like a dissolve or something like that, by not letting the audience necessarily applaud the end of one scene, you're able to pull their attention directly into the next scene. And you don't need to lead off with like a declaration of like, here's the premise. You can literally cross through a scene and enter as a new character already in the middle of your thing, already in the middle of your action. Mm. And the audience, instead of wanting to see, okay, what's the premise? What's going to get me into this? Start a little bit 
um, more off balance with you and are just kind of following along with, okay, what's what's happening, what's happening with you. Mm -hmm. So it gives you that opportunity to start more like an actor and less Mm -hmm. like a writer. I feel like when you, when you sweep and you clear the stage for a second, you have to enter a little bit as a writer. Yes. And no, I definitely, and it kind of has just for a split second that like, freeze tag anxiety yeah, of like totally. my first line has to be great. Yes. Whereas if you're just coming in, then it's, it's more of when you're, when you're doing, when you have the edits and you have kind of that writer quality, it's like, we're putting on something for you. Whereas perhaps without the edit, it feels more like we're just in this thing right now. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. It's something I like, but it is, it's definitely hard. Um, There's a, a great, like to go back to Mick Napier, he has a, a, a great piece of advice about like, you got to do whatever, it, whatever it, it takes to make this unimportant for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, like lower the bar for yourself. Um, which I think is super, super useful advice because almost all of the things that end up getting in your way as an improviser have to do with being inhibited and feeling like what you're about to do has too much at stake to it. And so you're kind of like, guarded or monitoring yourself or trying too hard or using too much muscle or thinking with too much premise or, or repeating too much of the same thing that you always do. Like it, it, you play it like a little safe because you feel like it's important enough that you can fuck this up. Mm. So like his idea is like, this is so unimportant and so disposable and so nothing that the less important you make for yourself, the more freedom you have to just get on with being playful. I totally agree with that. Me too. Um, but it's interesting how lowering that bar and making it unimportant for yourself can mean different things to different people because you can also end up doing an impression of what you think it means to lower the bar and come on out. Like, like for me, that would be the equivalent of like, all right, I'm I'm being too serious in my shows recently. So I'm going to make it unimportant. I'm just going to come out with like an emotion or a sound or a physicality, Mm. which to me is like uh, spells disaster. (laughs) I just learned from hard experience that like mm-hmm. you try it and it ends up being this desperate attempt to have fun. Yes. And then suddenly you realize how not fun you are yeah. and how you've let everybody on the stage down with your nonsense. And it becomes the most important thing in the world. It feels just like the freeze tag thing. Yes. Again. There are times when I'm, you know, a day here and there where, you know, I've lost the battle with anxiety that day. And yeah. now I'm coming into the, improv feeling like, you know, maybe, maybe I've been just sucking in my shows and I should really come in with something like, I'm going to be like really this kind of character or like, I'm not planning the scene, but even just like that tiny thought that I really want to do something special with this show. Yeah. Just, it's, it's just an impression of fun and I'm, I'm not even present. Yeah. It's like my body is being pulled by like deranged puppet strings. That's interesting. Yeah. I, it seems to me that a lot of people uh, um, who cope with anxiety are drawn to improv. <laughs> it does though, uh, right? Yeah, I think so. Which is interesting because I can think of few things that lead to anxiety quite as well as improv yeah. does. <laughs> why? I mean, you can't speak on behalf of other people, but like, I don't know. Why is that exactly? Oh gosh. I have my own theories, but I'm curious what your theory is. I don't know if I have a theory just because I, for me personally, just performance has just always been around. So, and perhaps, and I think for most of my life, I didn't quite realize I was anxious. I just 
kind of like always wanted to be great all the time. Yeah, so yeah. I didn't, not until adult did I realize like, oh, I'm like, I'm, I'm anxious about this social interaction. It's not, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know if I have a, a real theory about it, to be honest. If you have one, I'm all ears. I, I do. Uh, but I want to back up for one second just to comment on, on what you just said. Isn't that a great feeling when you realize, oh, I'm anxious around in, in social situations. Oh, that's what that feeling is. <laughs> or like, oh, I'm bored. Oh, mm. like when you kind of realize that you've been so close to a feeling that you haven't been able to identify what it is, you've been like in the grip of it. When you finally get a little bit of perspective or either, either somebody helps you to realize it or you have that epiphany or you like realize like, oh, I'm anxious talking to new people. <laughs> Isn't it like a great, exciting? I find it exciting, but I also find it like, um, for instance, I recently, in the very apropos to the Magnet Theater, recently, recently realized that I'm extremely anxious around um, casual acquaintances. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. put me around strangers and I will crush with charm yeah. and my great friends. But like casual acquaintances were like, I don't quite know where we stand and maybe you don't really remember me. Yeah. I couldn't be more anxious. And because I realized around acquaintance that, around acquaintances I'm anxious now sometimes I might previously probably could have like forgotten and breezed through it occasionally Mm -hmm. Uh, but now I'm like oh red alert there's an acquaintance it's like I've added anxiety to my anxiety I I feel very similarly to that too and I think that it is that middle thing of like we're not close enough that I can just let it all hang out (laughs) but we're also not like new enough that I can just play, you know what I mean? Like we know enough yeah. about each other now that like, I have to be, um, I have to go a little deeper than just putting on a show for you for <laughs> being entertaining. And it, it's very anxiety inducing. Louis, I don't, I have not known how to talk to you in the theater for four years. Really? <laughs> yes. Oh man. <laughs> it's not because of you. It's because of me. Well, <laughs> I, I feel very similarly. And, 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 and I'll, <laughs> And, and, but in the opposite thing, it's not you, it's me. I like, I chronically feel like, man, I'm such a jerk and people just <laughs> must think I'm, I'm the biggest jerk. No. It, but like, it is this thing of like, and people who are like, if you're a student or, or we like vaguely know each other, you know, like, I'm sure I'm fine. And if we're old friends, I'm sure I'm fine. We've gotten this far together. Mm-hmm. But for people in the middle zone, which is pretty much everybody at the theater, <laughs> yes. it's like, oh, they just must think I'm such an asshole. No, they don't think you're an asshole. They but all think, they all think what I'm thinking. I well, know. maybe in my head, which is like, oh my God, he doesn't remember yeah. me. Why right. would he want to talk to me? That's exactly <laughs> what it is though. It, it, and it, which is one of the reasons why I think it, People are drawn to improv, even though it both triggers a a pretty severe anxiety sometimes. Like more often than not, improv will trigger a lot of anxiety. Mm -hmm. Even though it triggers that, one of the reasons why I think it it is very appealing to those of us who are predisposed to to being in our heads a lot is, um, A, I think it gives you practice in coping with something that you're coping with anyway. Mm -hmm. Like there's an element of control to it. Because I know for me, I honestly have no clue what I would be doing if I were not an improviser. <laughs> I, like, I can't even imagine an alternative lifestyle. Mm. I, I, have no, I don't know where I'd be. I, I had no plan. I don't know where I'd be. I have no idea. But 
there's a good chance, like I have a tendency to like retreat from situations. I have like a pretty deep genetic hermit quality to <laughs> me, you know? And it's sort of like given the choice between letting anxiety make you retreat into your shell and basically disappear versus, uh, um, in a way, having control over it because you're deliberately putting yourself in a situation that triggers an anxiety that would have been there anyway. I think that there's something a little bit more empowering about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think for a lot of people, and I guess part of it is me, it's like, a, you know, I've always maybe had these thoughts in my head, but I, I would never want to let them control me. So I'm always going to like go the farthest I can to push against them. Yeah. I, I, for me, I, it goes back to what you were saying about like regretting the choices you didn't make or, you know, like everything in my psychology is like, go home. Uh, 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 don't interact. Don't do anything. It's a very, very strong thing to like have to fight against that feeling. But then there's this thing of if I do what makes me feel very comfortable, I instantly regret it. Hmm. Cause I instantly know like this feels very safe and very homey, but this is actually like a poisonous behavior. This is not a good behavior. It's a, yeah. It's like, it's a, like a succubus. It is. It, it's letting me live wrapped up by my own daydreams of security mm-hmm. by not having to be out there and not having to, to like interact. And you know, like it, it's very easy for me to feel like I'm secure when in fact I'm just kind of turning my back on everything. Mm. And improv has a nice way of, because you, practice living out these daydreams in improv scenes because you get to not be yourself and and exercise through somebody else's personality. (laughs) I think you actually do in a way disentangle yourself from some of the stronger daydreams that are kind of chronically running on a loop in your own mind. Oh yeah. I I think that there's like, you have, so, so in a way, like, a person is like a figment of their own imagination. You know, like in a way you spend your life putting together these different like stories about yourself and these different like, oh, I could be this kind of person. I want to be that kind of person. I wanted to, and some of those are a little bit more realistic and some of those are like purely fictional and the purely fictional ones, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, that's, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. and the ones that are a little closer, you kind of know, but then there are these kind of like nefarious ones that are somewhere in the middle ground. It's like that, promise you constantly make to yourself that like, well, in three years I'll be. Yes. Yeah. And it's been three years for the last 20 years, but it feels close enough that you don't even catch yourself making this like promise that you're never actually fulfilling. Mm -hmm. And those are the really tricky ones. Those are the dangerous ones because you find that you do have potential, your, your own actual innate potentials as an individual are wrapped up with these daydreams and these fantasies that you kind of use to make yourself feel a little more secure and and make yourself feel like you have like a purpose or whatever it is. But they're, they're dangerous because they can kind of trap you in a daydream of your own making. Yeah. And I think that the lifestyle of an improviser, as anxious as it is, you begin to disentangle from those a little bit mm-hmm. because on the other side of the anxiety that you feel from having bad shows or letting people down or not knowing your own voice or not knowing your own sensibility on the other side of that is you occasionally encounter your own actual point of view. <laughs> and when you encounter it, 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 it's like once you've had that experience of realizing, Oh, I just, I just did this by instinct. I wasn't even thinking about it. It just came out by instinct. 
it doesn't feel like a big deal when you're doing it. And then you look back and you're like, oh, wow. It's like, that was the real me. It's awesome. Yeah. I think that there's something to that of like people with like fairly chronic anxiety. There's something to the experience of being an improviser where there's a reward when you pay the price of confronting anxiety doing this shit. Yeah. No, definitely. Like when you do have one of those magic scenes. Yeah. It feels incredible. Yeah. I also think just kind of what you were saying, I think I was kind of thinking that it's more than just people with anxiety are drawn to improv. I think it's like people with anxiety who also have just like a tiny bit of ambition. Yeah, for sure. Because just anxiety alone, I think might, well, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of people here, but like um, there's also kind of like ambition is also in its own way a curse. Yeah. And so, you know, you're, so it's people who perhaps are like anxious, but they're also like battling that constantly to like push for something new. Like this is perhaps every show is a little bit of like a constant battle to succeed. Yeah. So. No, I think that's probably true. Mm -hmm. There are some people who will like show up to a class who seem to be like crippled with nerves. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, that like something drove them to be in this room right now. There's like some small part of you inside that knows that there's something of value here for you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and maybe 95% of the rest of you is talking you out of it and making you really passive. That little tiny 5% is like, get up and do this thing right now. Yeah. And then I think there's a, a other people where, you know, we're like, we're in a quandary a little bit where there's like inner conflicts going on. For whatever reason, you grew up and you internalized a couple of different directions from people or you, you, what you perceived as directions and they contradict each other and you never spotted the contradiction, but now you grow up and you have this contradiction right at the heart of your personality. Oh no. You got to achieve, but also you don't want to be a, you don't want to be a, a, a arrogant. Yes. <laughs> you got to be humble and, and, and oh, the other person always comes first, but also you got to prove yourself like, yeah. And it leaves you in this like horrible, vicious quandary of like, you're kind of at war with yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think improv is actually a very like, it gives you a safe release valve for those things. And I do agree that like that little bit of ambition and that little bit of, it's like a sport in that sense of like, well, get up there and prove it. Get out there and play that game. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which is not to denigrate the kind of improv that is more about just like safe support of let's come together in a class and have fun. That's great. You know, but I think that the people who, who do classes and find themselves performing a lot also have that element of there's some part of my personality, despite everything else that's pushing in the opposite direction. There's some part that is like an athlete in that sense of get out there and score. Yeah. Go, go. Definitely. And then you feel good when you do it and you do it in somebody else's voice too, which is a big part. Yeah. I remember, I remember a moment like moments like that. Um, just like I, when I was maybe in like the beginning levels and maybe I was in a, we just might kiss. Mm -hmm show or something like that. And like, I was terrified and I remember I hadn't gone out that much. And then it was one of the last scenes and I didn't even quite notice that it was, this was clearly a callback scene for another character, but a voice in my head was screaming, like, you have to go now go. And I like, it jumped out. It ended up being like a huge win of a scene. And I remember that moment felt like angels singing on my, into my face. Like it felt so great. Yeah, it does. And, And there is the best moments at least for me, always have this weird quality of, oh, I made a mistake. I came out in the wrong scene or I'm <laughs> responding to the wrong thing or I'm don't, not 100% sure what's happening. 
And then somehow, hand in hand with that mistake, is you do the most brilliant, correct <laughs> thing you possibly could. Yeah. That's like one of the weirdest things that has been pretty consistent for me through the years is my best shows always invariably I was like a little bit lost <laughs> and a little bit like in over my head and like accidentally did the right thing. It's instinct. It's a very exciting thing, actually. Mm-hmm. I was in a, uh, um, I did a, a like an on-camera class recently where they were saying like, when you go into audition for something, when you walk away from the audition and you know what you did in that audition, you're not getting that job. But if you walk away and you really don't know what you did, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to be hired for that thing. Mm. And I get that. Yeah. Because there is, when you're on stage and you're really conscious of all the funny things that you're doing right now, not that that's bad. Yeah. But that's not you at your it's not, like it's optimal. Not sparkly. It's not sparkly. Yeah. Where it's sparkly and where it's that amazing high that everyone talks about, you do kind of like after the fact, you were like not 100% conscious of what you yes. were doing. Yeah. It was just like coming out somehow. That's great. Yeah. I don't want to say divine intervention because that removes your personal agency. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, you know, just like something beautiful inside of you just took over, which is cool. I think it's just more of like, if you think of like the inner life of a human being as being sort of like, um, this is an awkward, an awkward simile, but bear with me. Okay. If you think of the inner life of a human being as sort of like a symphony orchestra, Mm. right? You're made up of all these like many different parts. You have a tendency to prioritize one section of instruments and that's like your dominant voice or dominant thinking style. And when you're playing comedy, you know, you have a tendency of like, oh, I'm a very strong violinist or whatever. So like my comedy tends to be of the violin quality, whereas this other person is a really strong timpani player and their comedy tends to be real timpani. And I think every now and again, you have these occasional moments where for whatever reason, you're just feeling it that night or you're a little tired or, or whatever it is, the planets are lined up correctly you open your mouth and it's like the whole symphony is playing together rather than just this one small part of it. And that's where it feels like divine intervention. And there is personal agency. Like I don't subscribe that to divine intervention, Mm -hmm. but I do think that it's just like, Oh, there's somehow more of you is in harmony and doing it together. It's more of you as an organism is the whole organism is cooperating to do this thing right now. Whereas in other shows, it's like this little part of me is taking care of it. That was a beautiful metaphor. Thank you. When I big sibbed your class, I would um, write down the metaphor that you used in class that week because you had one for almost every week. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. I, I like metaphors. Yeah, it's, it was wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> metaphors are great. I think that's how your brain talks to itself. I think it's really effective. Yeah. Yeah. It just like some, because you can talk about the, you know, the, there's something about explaining it in a, in a different way that can always unlock it, I think. I, uh, yeah, I I think it's when you like, metaphors are cool because they're more picture oriented than, than concept oriented Mm, sometimes. I think it's just easier to think in pictures Yeah, or, or it's easier to, to see relationships in pictures. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're thinking verbally a lot, you can, you got to put a lot of oil in the old (laughs) brain or else it like overheats pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, definitely. Um, Anyway, let's not talk about metaphors. <laughs> Moving on to the portion now. 
where I'm going to ask you to improvise a scene, Christina. Ah. This is called a very serious scene opposite a jar of pickles. Here's how it works. Evan may have explained this to you before. What's so, it wrapped in? This, what is this wrapped in? Is this like a, is this for one of the headphones? It's a cover for the mics. Cool. Oh. We have a nice like velvet cover for the microphones <clears throat> and we use it uh, uh, to wrap up the jar of pickles so that we can do this cool unveiling. It's like a fun, like cool, exciting thing. So here's how this works. So this jar of pickles is going to be your scene partner. And I'm going to have you improvise a very serious scene okay. for 60 seconds opposite the jar of pickles. The only rule of this for no good reason is that if you ever refer to the jar of pickles uh, uh, directly, you would call it a jar of pickles. That's the name of the character as well a as the actual object. Yeah. It's pretty stupid actually. <laughs> Today's uh, suggestion. Uh, oh my God. Jesus Christ. Holy shit. Uh, it comes courtesy of Steve Howes. Steve Howes? Yeah, courtesy of Steve Howes, uh, a listener to the podcast who has tweeted us a suggestion. Thank you, Steve, for listening. And those, incidentally, if you want to hear your own suggestion, you can tweet us at Magnet Theater for a second. Okay, this is very heavy. Jesus Christ. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to riff on this one a little bit. This comes courtesy of Steve Howes. So, Christina, you are explaining to a jar of pickles, this jar of pickles, that uh, mom is not coming home because of a teen drunk driver. I'm going to add on to this. Mom is alive, but she's in, in the intensive care unit in the hospital right now because of a teen uh, a drunk driver. Jesus Christ. It's fucking heavy. There's no twist on Thanks, that. Thanks, Steve. Hold on. I'm going to add a little bit more to this. To... Okay. Let's do this. Uh, You're going to explain to the jar of pickles that mom's not coming home. Uh, 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 no, let's go with that. I'm not going to add anything. Have a, have a, 60 seconds. Right. <laughs> God damn it. Um, hey, a jar of pickles. Um, <laughs> just, um, I just, can you stop? Just stop playing Skyrim for a second. I am. Um, I just be. No, I I know this is I I know that you can pause in Skyrim though because I've seen you pause before, right before they attack you. So I know that you can pause. Um, <laughs> so this is just really it's really important. A jar of pickles, please. You're gonna want you're you're gonna look back on this moment and be upset that you didn't pause. <sighs> mother, <laughs> God, <laughs> your mother is in the hospital and. There was an accident, and what we're going to do right now is go to the hospital and see your mother. She was hit by a teen drunk driver. A jar of pickles. We're going to get through this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's that's, that's, it. I'm going to go ahead and say, Evan, I think this is our finest serious scene. I'll be dead honest with you, Christina. If I had to find out this terrible news, that's exactly how I would want to point it out. It's very like matter of fact, but also like there's a sense of like we're in this together. I liked it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Steve Howes, for suggesting that. Again, if anybody has an idea for a scene you would like to hear on this delightful podcast, please tweet that at us. Magnet Theater is the handle. We're like getting to the end of, of our conversation. It's flown by. 
It's been great because now that you and I have had this meaningful interaction, yes. I will not feel like I don't know how to speak to you anymore, at least for six months. And then I'll be like, I don't know if he remembers me. No, really? Is that like, um, is, is it really, is it really no, a thing no. that doesn't remember? I think that, no, 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 okay. no. I know that you remember me now. <laughs> How so? Yeah. <laughs> that would be, that would be like a, you know, like there would, there would be a problem if you didn't remember me, I yeah. think. Um, that was an exaggeration. Just, you know, like a funny callback joke. And it was funny. No, thank you. <laughs> feel free, feel free as I will feel free mm. to talk. Let's feel free to talk to each other anytime we see each other. Oh. Or not. Or not. You know, because that's, that's a, cool too. That's so wonderful. Yeah. I think that's actually a big part of it is, <laughs> it, it, it is the, you feel an obligation with acquaintances mm-hmm. to have to. Yes. Talk. And, and you don't have quite, the relationship isn't quite worked out. So you feel like. A what, blo- what could I say here? Exactly. Yeah. And it's the fact that it's obligatory that makes you slightly resent the other person, <laughs> even though they didn't do anything. And then you assume that they're resentful of you because this is like so painful oh, for you. Goodness. And it just becomes this self-perpetuating. It really gets off on the wrong foot. It really does. Yeah. <laughs> I think, and I, like I've actually like struggled for a long time with like, it, it, it's tough for me to be in a position where people don't like me. Not that I'm like going, I'm not like a politician, mm. but it's just like if, if I make somebody angry or somebody gets upset, like for a long time, that would like cripple me I'm getting a lot better with oh, it. Yeah, me too. But like, um, actually realizing that like, you know, like if I see you on the subway and there's that moment of like, Oh God, are we going to have to ride oh. the subway? And, and you're like, nice to see you. And then you walk away. It's wonderful. Yeah. Not only do I not think you're a jerk, but I'm actually relieved that like, oh, thanks for not making me feel like I'm a jerk either. Yeah. Some people might think that you actually are an asshole in that situation, but that's the risk that you have yeah, to no, take. I don't give a fuck about yeah. them. No, I've started to like feel confident about that choice though, yeah. because it's like, there's nothing worse than a 45 minute locked in eyes to eyes kind of subway yes. trap. Neither of us wants to be having this conversation. (laughs) And then like, what's nice about that is when you have that established and you know that like, oh, this person's kind of okay without entertaining me. When you do end up riding the train together and having a 45 minute conversation, you kind of know that it's like, oh, because they want to talk. And it's like, it feels nice. It feels better. It feels valuable. Mm -hmm. So, so henceforth, Hmm. uh, uh, feel free to talk or not talk whenever. Oh, Great. I'd love that. Me too. Oh, God. Friendship, man. It's a good thing. <laughs> Christina Grosspeach, thanks for being here. Oh, is that it? That's it. Oh, we did it. We did it. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. Uh, thank you all for listening. Is there anything you want to plug really quick before we go? Uh, I guess um, the 10 minute um, play Jesus festival. Jesus Christ. You I should- cannot believe it. Oh, my God. I was like, when I was planning for this conversation, that was going to be the bulk of the conversation. Oh, goodness. So we're not done yet. Tell us about the 10-Minute Play Festival. God damn it. Oh, um, yeah. We're Magnus doing a 10-Minute play, play Festival. I'm producing it, and everybody should submit. I think it's really exciting. I think it's, um, there's, I think it'd be a cool, there are a lot of sketch, awesome writers here who probably have never written anything like this, just like longer than a sketch with a little more authenticity, probably, as we were speaking about before. I think it's a cool opportunity for all the talented people to like maybe do some real acting. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to put something up. That's like a huge American theater tradition. And we're a comedy theater that's new and unique. And I feel really proud about it. So the submissions are open. You can go onto the blog to find out about it. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the criteria for it? 
the criteria it's it is 10 minutes is a hard is a hard rule so we won't read past the 11th page um and there are just like a few questions that would be great if you could answer in the email they're in the blog which are are you associated with a comedy theater have you done any previous like playwriting and um why do you want to be involved and then yeah you just email it over has to be a pdf yeah please do in pdf uh who you're producing it who else producing it just uh me but it's me. Fabulous. That's amazing. I'm so ex- I'm super excited for this yeah. and cannot believe I forgot to talk about it through the rest of the interview. But that's what happens. Uh, um, and what are the dates for it? Um, the submissions are due February 19th. Great. Auditions will be at the end of February. And the final festival will be March 19th and 26th. All right. So all your writers and actors and everybody out there. This is a huge... I am genuinely excited for this. I cannot wait for this to happen. I think that it is just a great step forward. I think it's, yeah, I'm excited. About yeah. It. All right. So check that out. Go to the magnet blog. You know where that is. And if you don't, if you go to the magnet theater homepage on the bottom, right is the blog. You can scroll through for links on stuff like that. Mm. 10 minute play uh, festival. Get on it. folks. <laughs> Christina. Thank you. Thanks for not letting me get away with that. Oh, thank you. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks Evan Ford Barton, our producer and our engineer. Thanks Ed Herbstman, our executive producer. Thank you to New York city, the city that never sleeps. And uh, uh, thank you, as always, to you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go online and give us a positive uh, shout out or recommend us to friends. It's a cool thing. If you have an idea for a scene, you want to hear a very serious scene, tweet that at us. Hey, we love you, man. You're doing great. All of you out there, you're doing real good. You know what I mean? You're the only you in history. Think about that. No one else has been you. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, everyone. Good. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.